Hello, and welcome to another Sports Nestor podcast. My name is Owen. Today is Sunday, June 27th, and I am joined, as I always am, by my neighbor, Max. How's it going, my friend? Good, good. We're in the middle of a heat wave here, and I guess where we left off last time was right before the Habs set the city on fire for a night, but it's been a solid summer weekend for me. Uh, Not too much activity today got about 10 minutes of tennis in the other day before my friend's strings snapped so that was a bit bittersweet and checked out a couple cool parts of this in Montreal that I'd never been to so nice to see new things in your city very nice yeah it's it's been awfully humid here in London I also got some tennis in this weekend Um, it's good weather for it and uh, besides that nothing too exciting just just waiting for uh next weekend is the long weekend of course here with canada day and then uh our friends south of the border uh with the fourth of july um and and that'll be exciting i'm pumped i uh we're we're headed up to the cottage for that weekend and i can't wait to finally do something outside of the city it's been a while so looking forward to that for sure let's just get right into it then Absolutely. On the docket today, I got quick update from the Euro Cup. It was an upset-filled Sunday for everyone. And then uh, watched some combat corner, uh, some basketball storylines, quick baseball bit, uh, some talking hockey, and and then finish up with maybe some tennis notes uh, as Wimbledon starting tomorrow. Very, very exciting. But I will hop right into the Euro Cup uh, Denmark's through against Wales, Italy's through against Austria, kind of how people saw things going. But we had a couple of massive upsets today, one more so than the other, and that would be the Czech Republic defeating Netherlands by a score of two to nil. Um, a big storyline, of course, in this is the fact that uh, Delic gets beat and has an absolute brain fart, forgets the sport he's playing. It's not basketball. And he falls on the ball and smacks it back with his hand. It's a direct red card for the infraction. And uh, from then on, Czech Republic playing with a man up. They managed to capitalize twice late into the second half. And that's a huge win for their nation. They move on to the quarterfinals. It's followed up by a pretty disappointing performance from a Portuguese side who was looking to defend their Euro championship. But Belgium gets on the board right before the, the halftime. Uh, Torgan Hazard with just a superb strike from outside the box on a quick counterattack starting from the Belgian goalkeeper, Courtois making a uh, pretty ballsy play to fake out Ronaldo uh, from clearing the zone. Ronaldo bites and then he is able to move it up the field and, and Belgium gets a quick counterattack and, and it was a fabulous goal. And uh, besides that one Euro Cup run, the the Ronaldo led Portuguese teams have tended to be disappointing. Um, obviously, once you win a Euro, you can hang your hat on that and it really changes things. But uh, yeah, another long line of disappointing results for Portuguese side. And, and who knows, this could be Ronaldo's last Euro. Certainly not his last World Cup, but could be his last Euro. Four years is a long time. Oh, so uh, definitely be a point where you'll have to stack up his numbers against some of the all-time greats because he is definitely one of the greatest to do it. Uh, but does he have the the international success to back it up? 
that would be the question. That's it from me. Looking forward to uh, three more days of, of knockout stage matchups coming up this week, and then we just go deeper and deeper into the Euro with better and better football. I can't wait. Max, over to you for some combat corner. Yeah, I have a ton of combat-related things to talk about today. I want to kick off with the UFC recap, talking about two fights. And in particular, I want to start off this segment saying I got my prediction breakdown very wrong in terms of the victor and how the fight went i think i was correct but cyril gone absolutely outclassed alexander volkov on the feet for five rounds and he just neutralized him in all the ways he's done in his last fights but the experience of volkov the the size and frame advantages, the style of fighting, all these things that I thought would really help Volkov uh, gone had an answer for. the. Yes, he's big, but size comes with a burden on your speed. And Volkov was by far the slower man, and gone took advantage of that with his footwork. He was able to be a lot more mobile, especially early in the fight. He started the feet really he started really bouncy on his feet and was able to move really in any direction he wanted um, sideways backwards and it Volkov was just never able to back up gone against the fence as he did to Walt Harris as he did to Alistair Overeem and that speed on the feet allowed him to find the range where he could pop the jab. And once he found that range, it was all night, nonstop. It was so fast. Volkov couldn't counter. I, I thought the straight would be there for him against the jab, and he never had the timing to land it. And those two things, really, the mobility on the feet and the speed with the jab helped Gon just have an amazing night. Uh, with those two things, he was able to keep Volkov on the back foot, keep Volkov out of his comfort zone. And from there, it was just a matter of continuing to walk forward, mixing it up with the combos, fainting the whole time. Cyril Gon looked so damn good. I think that was his fifth fight in the UFC, his eighth MMA fight ever. And the guy looks ready to fight for the UFC title. It's incredible. I think at this point, you can call him the best technical striker in the division Volkov there's other fighters you have Ngannou or Blades who wrestles very well you have Ngannou who punches very hard and has clearly shown some improvements in technique you have Lewis who punches very very hard and you have Stipe who does it all so well but pure technical striking ability uh, Cyril Gon put a feather or put a stamp next to his name in that category. And man, it was such a striking mixed martial arts masterclass. He never looked in real danger. He hasn't at all throughout his UFC career. He took someone who's very good at what they do and strike fighting on the feet. The only fight Volkov has lost like from start to end, not counting that Lewis fight in the UFC, would be against Blades and Blades did it with grappling, but no one's just consistently outstruck Volkov like that. Um, but man, the elusiveness and defensive 
strength and how threatening he is with his offensive ability once he finds his range the way he maximizes his speed is so technical and efficient with all his strikes it's such a problem and it gets me so i said before this fight i think the winner deserves a title shot and i'm i'm so excited about the prospect of cyril gone versus francis Ngannou because that's the kind of style you want to see against a power puncher like Francis Ngannou, someone who it's like, oh, maybe they could go five rounds without getting hit. And Gon has the explosiveness. He has the speed. He has the footwork technique to get out of that really dangerous first round. And now we can say second round as well. So I, I know there's a lot for Ngannou. I know there's Lewis. I know Stipe is not out of the mix, but I think Cyril Gon's next fight should be for the UFC title. And I really hope it's against Francis Ngannou. That's such a fascinating matchup with, especially they have a bit of shared gym history as well. So I'm sure that comes out a little in the buildup. That's got to be the fight next for Cyril Gon though. There's nowhere left for him to go at this point and he's fully earned it. I, I don't think he'd be a favorite, but I think of the entire UFC division, Gone right now would have the closest betting line to Ngannou. He just, it's not like, oh my God, this guy's such an absolute killer. He's just so hard to hit. And that's what Ngannou does really, really well. So it'd be fascinating. The best thing about Ngannou is he hits you and you go down. The best thing about Gone is it's really hard to hit him. So that alone makes the matchup worthwhile and I hope that's what they make next. Not done in the heavyweight division. The co-main event also happens there. And a Canadian, our boy Tanner Bozer, gets a big win in the second round by knockout just three weeks after his last fight against Ovin St. Preux. And fighting guys who are at the tail end of their career, I don't know how many fights St. Preux has left, but... They're old, they've got power, but not the speed, maybe not the chip on their shoulder, aggressiveness. And St. Preux's looked overwhelmed a lot in his past few fights. Bozer came out and lived up to his nickname, the Bulldog, or excuse me, the Bulldozer. He just came out and never let the combos stop flowing, never let St. Preux get settled and put the pressure on reduced St. Preux to like a very ineffective counter striker in the first round. That was beautiful. St. Preux gets a little urgent, pulls out a takedown. I, the biggest knock on me for Bozer is the uh, takedown defense. He had a moment where he could have slipped out of it and he tried to engage in the underhooks battle and that's what cost him position and put him on his back. Looked uncomfortable there. Then the real controversial moment of the fight, he uses a closed fist to leverage himself up. And once he has that little bit of space, his hips have a little pop, a little space from the ground. He's able to work his way back to his feet. Uh, DC really getting mad at Bozer and the ref. Uh, replay after the fight showed it was legal and perfectly valid technique, which never seen that before. So creative by Bozer. And then I think St. Preux really put everything into that takedown. He, his corner was shouting. They thought Bozer grabbed the fence. That might've bewildered St. Preux a bit, but Bozer just swarms him. I think it shows St. Preux was the more gas fighter at that point because he stays in tight and connects with a big knee. And from there, one or two more follow-up shots end it. 
I know that ends a two-fight losing streak for Bozer. I know it's hard to say the value on St. Prue's career right now, but the biggest knock on him against uh, Latifi, against Arlovsky, was volume. It looked like he didn't throw enough, and he totally fixed that in this fight. So if we can see more of that going forward, I think this guy could be a top 10, maybe eventually top five heavyweight. His Physically, he looked great. He's exactly what a heavyweight should be, a big frame. He doesn't have to cut weight, so he doesn't look like a skeleton. But there's not like, oh, I'm just going to eat whatever I want. I'm a heavyweight amounts of gut hanging from him. And it's a very healthy look he's got in there. So I think he's got the physicality. He's got the striking, the grapple defensive IQ needs some work and maybe some takedown get-up moves. But I think this guy, a Canadian, might be one of the biggest ones in MMA going forward, coming off this win. That loss against Gone has aged beautifully now. All right. I thought that might be the end of Combat Corner, but to my very, very happy surprise, I discovered my favorite boxer, Vasily Lomachenko, had a match scheduled last night and it was on TSN. So I got to tune into that. And Lomachenko Owen coming off the first, second loss of his pro career, the first real true loss uh, against Tiafimo Lopez. Loma, everyone he's fought, it's like he downloads this data in the first couple rounds and then just picks up the pace. So this loss against Lopez, he really took his time. He didn't really get going until the sixth, fifth or sixth round. And then Lopez came back and won the 12th round strong. So the slow start was one thing, but the fact that Lopez like, one around once Loma had turned it on was like unprecedented in any of the boxing matches I've seen. And that was the really impressive thing by Lopez. And the fact that he kept the first six rounds slow enough not to gas and was able to mentally withstand the pressure of fighting Loma for 12 rounds. Now it's come out, I didn't know this until last night, that Loma had a shoulder injury in that match. So that explains the slow start. And you really saw him fix both these things in the fight tonight against an opponent who gave Lopez like one of the toughest fights of his career. Loma came out and just looked so aggressive, started landing power shots right from the get-go, put that this insane pressure on early where he is so He's my favorite boxer because he's so fun to watch. He just, everything he does is so efficient, so clean. His movement's so explosive. The way he like sets one angle, steps out of it, already knows where the opponent's going to step and like pops in there with like two punches and then is out and like setting up the next strike before you or his opponent know what happened. And it's not in and out. It's the whole round he's doing that. And he was doing that from the first round all the way on. I think he had the best opponent possible for a comeback fight. This guy just ate so many punches. He like didn't even get properly knocked out. The ref, it was one of those TKOs where you've just been punched in the face too many times. I'm going to stop it before you get punched in the face anymore. But 
not only did he take a ton of punches, but he was still giving. He kind of accepted that he was the worst boxer, but stayed composed and tried to consistently land like one counter shot for every four or five Loma did, which eventually that exchange rate is going to get you into trouble. But it let Loma go on for a while. And a lot of the time, like guys just quit on the stool against him because it's, I didn't land anything for the last three rounds. I want to get out of here before I get hurt. So we don't get to see the finishing instincts of Loma too often. Sometimes he'll have a quick knockdown and that's it. But this, we saw him just put combo after combo after combo together. It was a vintage performance by Loma. I, I don't think he could have asked for a better one to say, I'm, Hey, I'm a way better fighter than you saw in my last fight. I can definitely outbox Lopez and it sounds like that's something that the Lopez camp isn't opposed to. So I'm, it's so awesome to have seen like the best in the world is back or looks back to form the former best in the world. It looks back, return to form and is giving all indications that he can go in there and redeem himself. So, so excited for that. Then the next UFC MMA event will be the trilogy fight between Conor McGregor and Dustin Poirier in 13 days. So combat corner content from now to then will probably be heavily associated breakdown prediction um, outside the cage and maybe a rewatch of that second fight together who knows but very excited for that till then we're going to wrap this up for now and we're back sports next door myself max with me owen for our basketball storylines we're going to start off with some 2021 NBA playoff history. The Clippers have gone down 2 nothing and then not come back to tie it 2-2. After game four, the series is now 3-1. A lot to talk about in this game. Start with the basketball itself. Yeah, uh, it, it, it was a game that went kind of the way you would the others had gone Chris Paul and Booker struggling a bit Aiton consistently solid Paul George is putting up numbers Reggie Jackson continues to cook guys one-on-one and then all of a sudden the fourth quarter things just shut down <laughs> the Phoenix Suns outscored the Clippers 15 to 14 in the fourth quarter like this is this is like 80s basketball this is early 2000s basketball a really low scoring affair it's only the second one we've really had these entire playoffs the other one being that weird Brooklyn Nets Milwaukee Bucks game but things shut down they slow down it's really grindy it's really physical there's a lot of great defensive possessions both ways and what the Clippers came to realize is when they get into these types of games Phoenix, different from Utah and from Dallas, is they actually have the defensive ability and connectivity as a team to hang in there. And uh, the adjustments that the Clippers made against Utah, against Dallas, in order to expose them, Phoenix has been a lot more flexible, and, and that is to the detriment of the Clippers. Obviously, still missing Kawhi is a big part of it, but they now are down 3-1 and very unlikely to see them win three in a row, two of the which on the road. Yeah, it's one thing I'm hearing or seeing a lot is 
the Suns need to use Aiton more down the clutch when he's their consistently best player. But there for sure is that element where he is so effective because of the minimalist sparringness where he's used only in his most effective situations. But a game like that, it's got to be worth at least a couple tries as opposed to like ISO mid-range pull-ups if you've got an entire eight minutes left to work. Um, Then the other thing I wanted to talk about is another game in this series where the last two, three minutes is just an unwatchable product for me, at least. I Do you think some changes need, like some big changes need to be made to try and wholesale avoid these type of things? Or do you think it's such a climactic moment that it's, people are going to watch it anyway? Like the hardcore fans are going to watch it anyway. And that's what carries this product. But I think the biggest change that needs to be made is they need to just be faster with replays that's it is you can have replay you can use replay you can do all these things but the decisions need to come way faster the replay cannot be there for five minutes you should be able to have guys actively watching replays of every play as it happens and call down and immediately give them the call you don't have to let the refs make the call you have plenty of other people who can make the call it with in and it's in capable hands so it should be okay this is being challenged 30 seconds to the office, confirm, yes, that's a call. Okay, let's get back. It's not these five minutes where the refs are watching 16 different angles and it's it's like they make a decision, move on, and people are like, that's the biggest thing in my opinion. Yeah, it's the other parts are just the nature of the foul game to end it and the use, the role that timeouts play in the thing, having like, okay, now we're going to break for a minute and a half before we see it tossed in and like a quick bucket and then another minute and a half break. I even the hardcore fans who watch it, I can't many imagine there's many who enjoy watching it. Like I think sports in general, save maybe for football are at their best when they're fluid. And there we've talked about what makes basketball an easier sport to analyze than hockey and that is that it's a much more static sport than bas- than hockey with a lot more resets. Mm-hmm. But I, I think it would greatly benefit in terms of watchability to have some more changes made to make it a much more fluid game because I'm yeah. hating these. What it, what, it, what it will come down to is if, if there are, you, you talk about reducing the number of timeouts, which then- Not even reducing, just like, but you don't need the minute and a half to. Yeah, it, it's stop. in the playoffs. All the all the stoppages are just longer. That's just the way it's always been. More ad revenue, more whatever. That, but the problem is, is if you shorten the breaks, it's actually more taxing on the players. And so what you're looking at perhaps is shortening the games. It's it's again, it comes down to that balance of money versus health versus product, right? Where if you're shortening the breaks that players have, if you're shortening the number of timeouts if you're if you're making the game more fluid then that's way really taxing on these players like you saw in these in in game seven of bucks nets you saw in this game the physicality of the play the fluidity the amount of minutes that these guys are now playing it affects product there's less shot making there's going to be more fouls there's going to be more there's going to be just more errors because people are fatigued and so you put 
the risk of injury. You put the risk of a guy like Devin Booker fouling out. Um, you have the risk of just injury from guys playing more minutes. And so then it becomes the next step is do we shorten the length of games, which I'm actually for, um, especially with the pace of play elevated, that stats are starting to go up across the board. Maybe you can adjust for that by shortening the game two minutes at a time. Um, Cause I, I think the product in itself maybe is a little bit too long, uh, but it's, it, it is interesting to think about that. And that's something we can definitely dive in a little bit more in the future. But for now, like the reason is they just need more ads, more revenue. And, and the breaks are important for those guys who want to be playing 40 minutes. Like, Zubac played 40 minutes tonight and he was pretty solid, but uh, him and Aiden were grabbing rebounds everywhere because of all the missed shots. Yeah. I'm I'd say two minutes left less doesn't make the last two minutes any better, which is more my gripe than how long when I sit down and how long when I get up, but yeah, for sure just something I want to keep track of as these playoffs go on and note another stinker. The one thing I'll say is I think it, you're talking about shot making. I think there's something to momentum that really gets lost in between all these breaks that balances out. Like remember game two when Booker and Paul George both had those crazy like pull up mid range, but you forgot they happened like in that two minutes, let alone right after each other with all those breaks. And I think there's a competitive mentality that's should be tangible. That's completely killed through that. Game two was definitely an anomaly, but it is something that we could see more and more with the reviews and, and refs having to make really tight calls. Um, the worry I have is one of the things that's so great about having the timeouts is you get to advance the ball, right? And that's what leads to those moments where guys, you just have a better chance of scoring late in games if you start at half rather. So then if there's less timeouts, if there's more fluidity of the game, then in those late, late game situations, they have to go the full length of the court. And it's just not as, as exciting. Like that's one of the reasons why they said you could advance it because it gives a team a greater possibility of scoring and adding to that excitement. I guess that's the argument you could make that way. Yeah, it's good to know what you want to keep if you're going to try and change things. The last thing I'll mention while we're talking about game two in this game and calls is I believe it was the pain out of bounds or like pain was carrying it. Mm. It got knocked. It definitely went off pain's hand last, but no video replay. And that's probably the only reason it goes Phoenix's way. Yeah, really, really bizarre that they don't do for that one like they did for the Booker call in game two. Um, yeah, the Clippers, it <laughs> it just, they had given that one up and they definitely should have had the opportunity to at least maybe tie this game. Um, they're going to look back, if they lose this series, they're going to look back. There are quite a few moments where they should have had it. Of course, the Paul George missed free throws are the biggest, leading to the eight and lob, but um yeah definitely some moments in this one where they came back they were down big at halftime and they had the opportunity to really close it out and just our Reggie Jackson Paul George I think just the ISO and the big heavy minutes that they logged in this one the type of game that ended up being it just it got to them they couldn't make the same shots that they're used to and it came down to a battle of free throws Phoenix actually doing something which I like and have advocated for a little bit more in recent years where 
if you're up three foul, just don't even, and because these are the two best free throw shooting teams in the league. Um, you're confident that you can play the free throw game just as well as, as the other team. Uh, so we foul them. Don't even give them the opportunity to tie trust that you're going to inbound the ball. It could get a little hairy, but Phoenix did it and, and was able to actually beat out the Clippers in the free throw game with a couple of misses from, from Paul George again. And of course, some of the intentional ones contribute to that. Yeah, strategically, it makes a whole lot of sense. Uh-huh. <laughs> the last thing I want to say about this game was just a golden moment from Mike Breen. Uh, Clippers on a big run, crowd going crazy, and it pans up to the luxury suite and, and Breen calls uh, Kawhi Leonard going crazy right now with Kawhi just in his complete monotonous state. It was a brilliant, brilliant call by Breen there. And one of the reasons why he's the best right now in the game. And, and yeah, he's, he's awesome. Can't wait for his finals calls. Uh, which we will be getting to shortly, less than a week now, probably until the NBA finals. Can you believe it? Yeah. On the other side of things, we're going into game three, ball probably tipping off right around now in five minutes, right around now. I'm not sure, but I'm feeling pretty good about my Milwaukee prediction after how they answered the call in game two much more dominant win for them and what do you think it was ultimately the difference I feel like between game one and two is Trey Young 48 points in one game nine turnovers in the other what do you think Milwaukee did to cool him down or was that just hard to stay that hot Milwaukee realized that they're like top six is just better than Atlanta's. And while Atlanta has a lot of creation, it comes to a point where Milwaukee's going, when we want, we can switch and cut off your, cut off Trey's ability. We can use our physicality to stop Trey from penetrating the paint because that's what opens everything up for Atlanta. And then uh, Middleton won his matchup with Herter. He played awesome defense on Herter. So if those two ball handlers are out right now, Bogdanovich is injured. So he's a bit of a non-factor. No one else on that Atlanta team can really create their shot off the dribble. Um, and you're not going to just give Gallinari post touches. Like, that's just not what you want. And so if, if you can really crowd Trey Young, make him make tough decisions in traffic, and then Middleton's winning his matchup with Herter, then you start to unlock the way to beat this Atlanta team. And um, Milwaukee also decided, hey, this team is – this Atlanta team is – their defense is a little bit overrated. Like, we – they hung in there when Milwaukee was going slow in the half court and Milwaukee said, okay, let's speed things up. If we're going in transition, they can't do anything. And Giannis was a monster in game three as he's been this entire playoffs. Um, And drew holiday, once again, really, really solid. He knows that the way he's built there, Atlanta doesn't have a single defender that can hang with him. Um, They've got a little bit more beef in their front court, but like Trey Bogdanovich Herter they don't have someone who can match up with holiday when he decides to go to the bucket. And so that was really big for Milwaukee and and they had a great game to bounce back. And it was big for them to assert their dominance in the series. Like, yeah, we are the better team. We're the higher seed. We've been here before. Uh, Let us make the adjustment now and, and really prevent Trey and Herter from, from getting into a rhythm. Yeah. And it's when the Hawks are I would say the game one went almost as well as you could possibly ask for for the Hawks. 
with just how on it Trey was. And that was still a relatively close game. Game two went as well as it could for the Bucs and that the offense continues to fire at a decent clip. And they're really able to lock in physically, defensively. The refing went their way and not being too namby-pamby on the calls. So when a game goes in everything you can hope for for Atlanta, it's tight right down to the edge. When a game is everything you could hope for if you're Milwaukee, it's not close at all. You've got to think, or I think, that plays out over seven. One or two games go well for Atlanta and slip away. The Bucks take it in the end, and that's probably how this series goes. So I, the game I'll be looking for to decide is like one where Trey hits 40, 40-plus, 40 and Milwaukee still pulls it off. But maybe they'll have just figured it out defensively, and it'll be game twos all the way down from here. Looking forward to it. Uh, game's underway right now, so looking forward to get getting that on the television when, when we're over with this. Uh, that's going to do it for basketball storylines. I'm actually going to jump right into my baseball bit right now. It's a really short one, really quick one. Uh, I wanted to take a moment to really highlight an incredible pitcher hitter this season who is not Shohei Otani. And while Otani has been out of this world and doing something we haven't seen in 100 years, there's another guy doing something we haven't seen in 120 years. And that's Jacob deGrom. He has the lowest opponent batting average ERA and uh, walks, hits, printing, pitched of anyone since 1903 through 13 starts. He has a 0.69 ERA, nice, uh, 0.53 whip, which is walks, hits, printing, pitched, 122 strikeouts, and he has only allowed six earned runs this entire season so far. And since he is in the National League, he has to hit. He has six RBIs as a pitcher. So he has driven in the same number of runs as a hitter than he is allowed as a pitcher. It's truly remarkable. It is like unprecedented what we've seen. And, and it's because it's such a uh, pitcher-friendly time in the MLB, we've managed to see some of these guys like Otani, like DeGrom. Uh, obviously, the no-hitters have been up. But it's just two really special talents, and I wanted to highlight DeGrom because I feel like we haven't given him enough credit yet on this podcast. And um, he's also batting over 400 as a pitcher, which is ridiculous. Uh, obviously, he's seeing a little bit better pitches because guys are going to go at a pitcher a little bit more so than a, a everyday hitter, but still unbelievable what he's done. Do you have the wins for those 13 games he started? So he's 7-2 and two on the season. Which is surprising. So he's obviously not getting enough run support from the New York Mets, but the the pitching staff overall for the Mets has been solid, and that's why they're doing well this season. But Degrom, especially, really, really special talent right now. Um, yeah, <laughs> what can you say about him? I also want to dive into the Toronto Blue Jays, who are now uh, six and one in their last seven games, beating up on a on a softer part of the schedule, getting a ton of wins against the Orioles, ton of wins against the Marlins. They're starting to creep back into the wildcard conversation. And, and that's because uh, with all-star voting announced today, uh, the Jays have five finalists uh, for all the positions. So Vladdy, uh, Marcus Semyon, Bo Bichette, Teoscar Hernandez, and Randall Grichuk, all in the finalist categories uh, at their respective positions. Uh, I think we'll probably see two of those guys 
out of the five, actually in the all-star game, Vladdy for sure. He leads the league in home runs now at 26. Um, but yeah, it's it's been a, a fun season so far for the Jays. They, they may not be having the amount of winning that everyone was hoping for, and that's been, of course, due to injuries, of course, due to some uh, underproduction from the bullpen. Uh, but overall, not much more you could ask for from this team so far. And I think they're really going to hit their gear going into the late summer months. And we could see a really fun stretch for this team uh, as the season go- gets into the second half. And, and it's always fun cheering for a, a baseball team that's having a good run near the end of the summer because it's just good vibes all around. <laughs> Here's hoping. Yes, sir. All right. We'll take one last break and we will come back to do our preview of the Stanley Cup Finals. And we're back, Sports Next Door, myself, Owen, along with me, my good friend, Max. We are going to enter our talking Hockey segment uh, and a quick recap of Game 7 between the Tampa Bay Lightning and the New York Islanders. Tampa Bay is going to be headed back to the Stanley Cup Final in consecutive seasons after winning last season in the bubble. Uh, and I imagine they will be the heavy favorites going into this series. But why don't we just talk quickly about how they got there? Yeah, they'll if they're the heavy favorites, it will be because they closed out a series that was in question. Their back was against the wall. Doubts were rising, and they answered all questions. A one nothing win sounds like an Islanders score. Like, oh, the Islanders made it their type of hockey. I I don't think that gives enough credit to the Bolts. This was a game that easily could have been three four nothing. It was absolutely an Isles game in terms of low offense for the Isles. Very few, I think they had 18 shots on net, not a lot of offensive zone time, very few slot chances. The few they get, Vasilevsky flawless. And the Lightning's only goal comes shorthanded, but they got a lot of momentum off of that, generated a lot more scoring chances off of that. And this easily could have been three, four, nothing game. That's hockey. Sometimes the puck's just a couple millimeters in the wrong spot on your stick. But the mark of a consistent winning hockey team is you can have those games and still find a way to get the W. And a roster with guys like Vasilevsky, with Hedman, with a roster that's overall just been to the finals and back is going to know how to get that done defensively. And that's going to be what the Habs are up against in this really polarized in Stanley Cup finals. There's a couple storylines you can run with. I felt at the start of the season, like the Bolts were my favorites to go and win the cup. Nothing's really changed there. The Habs finishing last in the regular season of all the teams that entered the playoffs. So it's a it's a bit of a stretch to say the worst team versus the best team because Tampa wasn't great during the regular season, but and now Montreal's looked so fantastic. You can't really call them David, but yeah. I don't know. What it's, do you think? The well, so the huge difference there is Montreal has Cole Caulfield, right? That is that is the enormous difference between that Montreal team and this one, where they play this stifling type of hockey similar to the New York Islanders, which Tampa has just experienced. But now they have this kid who arrives on the scene, is like, hey, I'm just going to go join the Stanley Cup for my first playoff action and just light it up, right? Like he's been 
superb, spectacular, whatever you want to apply, electrifying. He's quick. He's small. He works in the crevices well. He's tough on the puck, surprisingly. Like in playoff hockey, you worry about um, a guy of his minutive size getting punished, but he's been great. And when the puck's on his stick, it's magical. And that is what Montreal had been looking for. They didn't really have that scoring pop. They still don't. Um, as a matter of fact, like, they haven't had a ton of production overall. They just, if they score two ga- goals in a game, they win. <laughs> and if they don't, they lose. And that's pretty much what they've had to get to. Caulfield, especially stepping up, he's getting more and more comfortable as he gets more and more reps and was huge in the Vegas series. And, and that's been the biggest difference of this team. He's the story up front. And then the story in the, in the net is Carey Price, man. Like, this is it. This is his final stamp of, I am still the greatest goalie of this generation. I am up there as one of the greatest goalies all the time. And he's good for three, can you believe that, saves. And he's good for about 30 saves a night. It's, it's truly astounding. And uh, this Montreal team, don't count them out. They play a style of hockey that just makes the other team's fans pull their hair out because they just rip their forwards to shreds. Why can't you do anything? Mark Stone is a big example of that. Of course, the Leafs, we don't need to talk about that. The Jets as well. And you got to eventually think that Montreal just figured out how to shut down opposing teams forwards. And if you do that, then there's not much offense coming from the other side, but we will see Tampa is the toughest test yet. Montreal keeps elevating the level of difficulty and, and they've arrived at the final boss. Yeah. You could make excuses up till the third round. I think Tavares out. This Leafs team is cursed. Shifley out. This Jets team doesn't have defense, but the Golden Knights came overcame a stiff test in Colorado. I and it, their forwards looked serviceable up until that Habs series. So you've got to give a ton of credit to the Habs for that. And you can't make excuses for this Bolts team. Whatever happens, the thing that's the most interesting uh, microcosm I think of this is going to be the special teams. Tampa Bay sitting near a 40% playoff power play. The Habs sitting at the 94% playoff penalty kill. It's going to be a big indicator of has there been some flukiness going the Habs way? Has the stru- has the clock struck midnight? Or are they just one of the best hockey teams in the league? As you've mentioned, Carey Price can elevate a team that maybe not every man on the roster is playing with the level of skill, physicality, and urgency to meet their criteria. And it won't matter because Terry Price, as you said, one of the goalies of this generation, but if Vasilevsky isn't in that conversation yet, he's got to be knocking on the door or maybe it's next generation, but might win the Vesna trophy for a second time, might get his hands on a second Stanley cup. He's, been one of the best goaltenders in the league for the past couple of years and everything price can do to win you a game vasilevsky can do as well so it, it might not make for the funnest hockey but it's going to be its own kind of like blood chilling thrill to watch these two goaltenders duel and see how the pressure from them elevates each other's level of play as well 
Yes, that that part will be fun if you are a goaltending lover. Um, and I think there's enough offense in this series that are there are going to be some goals each way. Montreal does enough to get pucks on the net, and of course Tampa is absolutely loaded uh, through their four lines, so they'll be buzzing around. We know that for sure. I wanted to. The last thing I want to talk about this series is is Montreal. Once again, I mentioned it already, but they're giving me some Team of Destiny vibes. Um, akin to that, that 2019 Raptors playoff run where they just kept overcoming the next hurdle. And for the Raptors, it took some key injuries. Obviously, we're, we're not going to discount that. The Golden State had some key injuries that may have changed the outcome of that series. But then a, a solid core group of guys who play on a string and put together some of their best performances. And that's what we're seeing from Montreal. They've had a little bit of injury luck. That happens to most teams that win in sports. Um, and they're getting it now. And now they're here. And it's Dano being absolutely shut down. It's Corey Perry, Eric Stahl, Arturi Lekkinen, Joel Armenia, who is possibly going to miss the first couple games of the series due to COVID protocols, which is huge because he's been their top like depth guy. And then, of course, you got Caulfield. You've got Suzuki. you got the, the, the guys up front with some skill and and – they're playing on a string in the top four of Montreal's D. Let's see how much they got left in the tank, but they've been really, really solid. Um, and I, I'm still going to, I'm going to pick Tampa in six, but I would not be surprised if the Canadians walked home with Canada's first Stanley cup since they did it back in 93. I called Tampa at the start of the season and I'm hoping I'm right, but man, this city went so crazy at just the win in the conference that I, it would be pretty cool to be in the city that wins the Stanley Cup, especially this city. So I will not be disappointed at all to be a part of that. Awesome. I look forward to the, uh, the, the emergency pod where Max is recording from his phone just out in the streets of Montreal. Hopefully not in a cop car. Yeah, hopefully. Okay. That is going to wrap up the talking hockey segment. Max, if you want to talk a little bit more about Wimbledon starting tomorrow, now the floor is yours, my friend. Yeah, I just thought we should put that on the radar. What's probably the biggest tennis tournament that happens all year kicking off in 15 or so hours as of this time of recording uh if you know who the players are to know you know if you don't there's way too many names to learn and most of them are going to be out quickly obviously the biggest storyline of this Wimbledon is Djokovic if if he he's already I think the rate he's been winning grand slams it's a matter of when not if that he takes the lead on 21 the u.s the australian opens has been just his almost at the level rafa owns the french the u.s open he's still got a better chance than anyone i'd say wimbledon maybe a slightly weaker case and slightly more strength for an upset but he's won it more than enough times he's clearly in the zone uh, he should be rested up. So can he hit the 20 mark and tie? Because from there, it's just how far ahead can he get? I think there's a lot of people, and 
out there and I would count myself among them who would say he's already the best tennis player ever, but how much farther can he continue his level of play? Man, the, the consistency and the variability of the tournaments he's won and the fact that he had to come up out of Rafa and Federer's shadow, like I'm sold on it. The Grand Slam sweep is on the table, right? It's it's yeah. it's it's a possibility, and that in itself would be an incredible accomplishment. Uh, the calendar as well. Yeah, I <laughs> I've been on the record um, saying that I think the Canadians have a good shot in Wimbledon. Um, I would I would encourage them to go for this one and also ratchet up for the Olympics later on this summer because we know that. Serena is out for the Olympics. We know Nadal is out for the Olympics. Um, we know Osaka's out. For the, there's some big names coming off the board for, for Tokyo. And there are a couple big names who have pulled out for Wimbledon. Uh, but it, it, it's going to be an opportunity for the Canadians to show their stuff. So I look forward to watching them. I, unless something's changed. I've, I know originally Osaka said she would compete in Tokyo. I don't know if she's ah. withdrawn from that. That is my mistake then. She's out at Wimbledon, correct? Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, Chapo won't be competing at the Olympics. He's already said, but. Boo. Yeah. A little sad to hear that. Chapo playing Monday, so probably his game will be over by the time this clip is up. Not quite sure when Felix plays yet. Um, both had pretty solid grass seasons. As far as pullouts for Wimbledon, other than Rafa, Taim is out as well just another top five guy. Um, I'll be really curious to see what Pass looks like after a fantastic clay season overall with Masters win, the French Open appearance. But as far as I'm aware, no grass playing time. So if he's, is he rested and recovered and still in that zone where surface doesn't matter? Uh, and I don't know if dark horse is the right word because he's already been playing really well, but uh, Umber, a player to keep an eye on, winner of not the cinch, the Halle. I think he took the French Open doubles. Uh, he was doing well at Mallorca before he pulled out, so hopefully he's rested, recovered, and be dark horse to keep an eye on. Absolutely. Thank you for the rundown. That's going to do it for this one. Thank you, everyone, so much for listening. I hope you had a wonderful weekend, and I hope you have a great week ahead uh, celebrating whichever holiday that's coming up for you um, this next weekend. And, and I'm, I know I'm looking forward to it myself. Enjoy the warm weather as well, even if it's a little bit too sticky for my taste. Um, enjoy it while it lasts because it's not here forever. So that's it from me. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Max, take us out. Pura Vida, Sports Next Door, signing off.